0: Hello and welcome to the Tales from Wales podcast sponsored by Joke Pit. This is episode 28 which we sit down for a chat with Welsh adventurer and world record holder Ash Dykes. Ash is a fascinating guest, really nice guy, really easy to talk to it was a pleasure having him on the podcast Uh, Going forward now, during lockdown, we're going to be doing live broadcasts of the podcast also. So they do try out on a Sunday, and then the audio of the episode will be put on a Monday. So you can watch it live, you can watch the video on Facebook if you want to, or you can just consume it via your podcast app as you normally do. Thanks very much for listening, as always. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 28 of the Tales from Wales podcast. (laughs) Hello and uh, welcome to the Tales from Wales podcast, our very first live broadcast uh, in partnership with Joe Pitt. Uh, are we going, Steph? How's is this uh, isolation keeping you?
1: Oh, I'm really enjoying myself. I'm loving it. I'm trying to grow a beard. Not working. I'm two weeks in. It's not working.
0: I'm going to shave it. It's, it's really strange sort of uh, doing this without you uh, with me sort of together in the studio recording together. How are you finding it?
1: I mean uh, who's touch your leg now? Uh sure. I mean it's nice. I have not have to like leave the house or anything, but uh yeah, it's, it's been I'm really excited, looking forward to this. Technology,
0: Yes, yeah, that's uh, something new. So our guest today is um, Ash Dykes, he's a Welsh adventurer, he's a, a, three, t- a three A three holder three records, first time world records. Um I think but if we can drop in an introduction to now and we, we'll bring out the studio.
1: In London, this is Good Morning Britain. Well, our next guest became
2: The first person ever to walk the length of the river Yancey. Well, it took two years to plan and another year to do it. Ash says he's the first person to achieve the feat, enduring sub-zero temperatures and high altitudes along the way. Our correspondent, Charlotte Lomas, spoke to him and asked the all-important question, why?
0: Ash, tell everybody what you've done ash dykes has completed his third world first he's back from some journey let me tell you you know what i thought when i heard that you did this i thought two things one i thought this guy's insane this is on tv news at 10.
1: it was not plain sailing
2: All the people de-
0: Ashley, welcome, welcome to the uh, Tales from Wales podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hey guys, thank you for having me. How are we doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, yeah. are you, are you holding up during this sort of period of isolation? Being a sort of a outdoor adventure, someone who's clearly a fan of the outdoors, is it a bit of a bit of a culture shock for you?
2: It's not, you know, surprising. A lot of people are saying, "You oh, know, how are you dealing with the isolation?" But my isolation is being solo in the middle of the Gobi Desert, high up in the mountains, or isolated in the jungle. So isolated here at home where I've got food, I've got shelter, I've got people to communicate, I've got signal, um, and I've got a place to sleep. Is uh, It's good, it's the luxurious type of isolation, I would say. <laughs>
0: yeah, so. I- iso- isolation plus central heat in.
2: <laughs> exactly
0: I'm yeah, running so water
2: I to make the most of it you know for sure learn some new skills develop myself keep up with the training still liaising with the the team out in China and um, Los Angeles so keep them busy and productive what about you guys
0: um, I, th- I think it's the same same for me. You know, I, I think routine yeah. is massively important, like trying to get up on time, trying to put clothes on, you know, get out your pyjamas and just trying to sort of give yourself a little bit of routine because it's so easy to fall into bad habits with like snacking or not exercising or just, you know, Netflix binges, that sort of thing. Have you found any bad habits or anything you don't want to be avoiding creeping in during this
2: period? Um. Uh, yeah. What would a bad habit be? Yeah. Um... I don't know, you know. I'm staying fairly disciplined, is what I would say. Yeah, I've always, I'm always sort of setting myself goals the night before, you know, so that I wake up the next day and crack on. Sometimes I can find myself just on the phone though. That's probably a bad habit, you know. When you get the phone out, you sort of scrolling, you're communicating with friends and whatnot. But then time will whiz by. Yeah, yeah. jobs that you've had down on the list. <clears throat> you know, you've got a short space of time to to smash them in now. So. Yeah, I'd say that's a bad habit. But uh, other than that, staying fairly, fairly disciplined and focused.
1: Have you made a, like an assault course or something in the house for yourself?
2: Have I made? I'm able, sorry, sorry. I
1: imagine you've done that, <laughs> like an assault course, like jumping over buckets, you, you swinging down my, the stairs my, and stuff.
2: My whole back garden is an assault course. My <laughs> God. I've got a punch bag I've got, a board, I've got rings, I've got a tractor tire, a sledgehammer, a multi-gym, a treadmill. And that's just distributed between the garden and the, and the garage. Because, of course, when I came back from Thailand to attempt the first world record expedition in Mongolia, um, I came back with no money. I was age 22, had no money. So I literally had friends and family drop off stuff like the sledgehammer, the tractor tire, and I created a routine that was so effective in my back garden that now that I can, of course, forward uh, gym membership, I've chose not to just because it's so effective here in the garden. So uh, I'm one of the fortunate well, ones that's still able to train from home, you know. Well, <laughs> when
0: it comes to that sort of um, approach of training and fitness and and functionality to what you're trying to do, a pec deck or a cable fly in a gym is not going to help you when you're on top of a, a high altitude mountain in the middle of South South Asia, is it? So, you know, it's, it's sort of, I think that outdoor training and that approach is going to have a better carryover for what you want to do.
2: Yeah, I'd say a mix. I'd say a mix. You definitely want to keep that strength there and that power. Uh, But what I try to do is focus on ticking off all components, you know, the speed, the agility, the flexibility, um, the coordination, balance, reaction time, Uh, and just, just focusing a little bit more on calisthenics and building inner core strength, because that's what I need more than anything. It's to be able to maintain, it's to be able to have a durable body. To maintain that for a long distance of time, um, and to be agile, especially like bringing it back to Mongolia, yeah. pulling a trailer weighing eighteen stone—you know, that's the that's the same weight as a heavyweight boxer—and I had to pull that for one thousand five hundred miles behind <laughs> me. So, uh, I just needed to make sure my routine was was effective enough to be able to to uh, last that duration. <laughs> yeah, to
0: pull, to pull Deontay Wilder for uh, 16, 1,600 miles. Um, this is the first time we've done the show in this format, and the people listening or viewing can, at, the, at the moment can join in. Jeff Japers, who's a fan of the show, was, uh, chimed in and said that I've got the best beers out of the three of us. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if anyone else wants to rank us in any order for any reason, that's... That's absolutely fine. Um, so you're, you're a holder of three world records, Ash, um, and they're all sort of quite extreme challenges. Um, was Zip World in North Wales not excited enough for you then? Did you have to, why did you feel you just sort of go further afield?
2: Yeah, you know, we, we're lucky, aren't we? The UK and Wales, we do live in a beautiful location. We're right on the coastline, of course. We've got the forests, the mountains, the lakes. So um, this was a great training ground, I would say, and it still is, um, sort of my training ground. It offers these hardcore conditions, you know, uh, before you take on any journey abroad. But yeah, I was always just super fascinated with the with the world. I was just curious. I wanted to to set out there, you know, learn from different people. I think we've all got our own unique and incredible and stories to tell. Um, different cultures, traditions, see how different countries work in various ways, different food, different landscapes, weather systems, the lot. So I was just in my local school. I went on to my college course um, here in North Wales in, in Llandriflo. And then it was after that I was working in a fish and chip shop. I was working as a waiter. I was working as a lifeguard. I was smashing out as many hours as I possibly could. Um, and then two years later, I saved up the money. I was just cycling to and from work every day, you know. Um, and then I eventually set off with a friend and we went to China. Uh, we were just traveling the normal backpacker route. And that's when we decided to, to get off the, the usual backpacker route and, uh, and do something different. One, we wanted to, to like, live with the locals to experience their life, And two, we had such a minuscule budget. You know, we're on such a ridiculous shoestring budget that we were like, right, we're going to do these adventures. You know, we need to be doing them cheap because we don't have the money to be doing these luxury adventures. Um, And and that's what we did. That's how we started. It was the Vietnam cycle first. Ten pound bicycles, no pump, no gears, um, (laughs) no puncture repair kit, no suspension. You know, we found string on the side of the road that we used to strap our rucksack onto the back of the bicycle with. No maps, no technology. And off we went. 1,100 miles. We were spending about must have been about one pound per day, and we would come across hammock shops. You put, you spend twenty pence, and the locals allow you to sleep in their hammocks overnight for twenty p, um, <laughs> which was great. You know, we were chased by dogs, we were hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries. It was extreme. It was reckless. I do admit I was only 19 at the at the time, but yeah. um, that that was the catalyst. You know, I realized my passion for for adventure.
1: May I just clear up that we know what lorries are. Joe Rogan didn't know what lorries are. So you don't have to worry there. We know exactly yeah. what lorries are. <laughs>
2: oh, nice. nice.
1: Yeah, you haven't
0: got to, you haven't got to change any terminology. <laughs> yeah. There, there won't be any sort of language. <laughs> yeah.
2: Changing from kilograms to pounds as well, wasn't it? <laughs> so do these journeys... Do
1: yeah, 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 exactly. And we'll do Celsius, that's fine.
2: Yeah, nice.
0: Is there a lot of sort of planning that goes into these, these trips and these, these challenges, Jack? because they, on the one hand, it seems quite random or quite sort of uh, as you're pulling out of the air, but is it a lot of planning and pre-effort going to it?
2: A ridiculous amount, yeah. For yeah. my early adventures, there wasn't. Uh, you know, the early adventures, I say again, were pretty dangerous. No planning, you know, just off we go. We would cross through the jungle from Thailand to Myanmar, and we'd learn, we'd come across a tribal community, uh, a Burmese Hill tribe, and they would accept us and we were then there in Myanmar, uh, effectively with no visa. And they were teaching us how to how to survive in the jungle, you know. Um, we were cycling countries to include Australia. We were trekking the Himalayas um, with no permit, you know. So it was all reckless stuff. Uh, but however, these these three recent expeditions... Yeah. With these, it wasn't a case of winning or losing. You know, it was a case of um, living or dying. So it was it was very life threatening. So that's when I needed to to up the ante um, and spend a good time making sure that I can do it, understanding every single obstacle <laughs> and challenge that can go wrong, and then studying and researching and learning how I can overcome each of these challenges so that I can come back alive. So that was the game changer. And this latest one, Mission Yangtze, it took over two years to plan. Um, Right. So, So, yeah, a lot of people... So the four
0: things long to plan is, did to do it?
2: Yeah, that's it. You know, especially with Mongolia. That's why my book is named Mission Possible. Is just, I was so scared. I held a lot of fear with the Mongolia journey. Um, This was a 1,500-mile journey, 78 days, completely solo, completely unsupported nothing but a bog-standard sort of satellite phone that I can text only, can't even make phone calls. And I was going three weeks over the Altai mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert and a further three weeks through the Mongolian steppe. Um, This had only ever been attempted uh, by one other person, and he attempted three times. Uh, We had to get logistics from Mongolia, from the US, from the UK, the Royal Geographic Society, uh, to find those people who have done it before. Once we realised that this is potentially a recorded world first, um, that's when it scared me, you know, because this previous yeah. guy who had failed three times—he uh, was a navy soldier, he was a desert explorer—and I was a 22-year-old living on a beach in Thailand as a scuba instructor, a void Thai fighter. You know, I'd never been to the desert. What <laughs> chance did I have? So all of these people were saying it's impossible, it's not doable. But I think, you know, just because something's not be- uh, just because something hasn't been done.
0: Yeah, definitely. What sort of fears did you have going into it? You said about like it was quite a lot of fear going into that trip. What sort of fears did you have?
2: Well, I think it was the whole fact that I was solo. But not only that, it was the fact that I would be facing certain things that I had never faced before. Uh, And experience counts for so much. I know that now more than I did like three, four years ago. I didn't know how I would react to being attacked by a pack of wolves. It's one good watching the television and thinking, oh, why doesn't he just do this? Come on, it's easy. I would be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, but when you're actually yeah. there, it's a whole different ball game. Um, because it's all right to say stuff when you're watching on the TV because it's fine. You're thinking you can make yeah. many mistakes. You can adjust. Out there, you've got one chance. If you If you make the wrong decision, that's it. It's game over. Uh, and so I didn't know how i deal with sandstorms, with snow blizzards, with, you know, being attacked by wolves, as I mentioned, to dry wells. I'd never faced dehydration before, not to the to the, the extent that I faced in the Gobi Desert. You know, I almost died. Um, and that was a big fear of mine before I set out for this Mongolian journey. And so, yeah, it, it was the uncertainty of how I would really handle things. And I had done a lot of adventures beforehand. I'd done a lot of, mainly with a friend of mine, um, and quite reckless ones, but nothing this life threatening. So I think that's why I held a lot of fear. I think with fear comes doubt, you know, the more that you sort of train and prepare yourself, the more that you're eradicating that doubt. Um, and then once you've got rid of the doubt and have confidence in yourself, what's there to fear? Fear is always a little bit healthy anyway, right? So yeah. Uh...
0: Yeah, no, no fear at all can bring you into uh, some sort of danger pretty quickly, can't it? Having that bit, little bit of fear there it is going to keep yeah. you safe. <coughs> yeah, fear,
2: fear is healthy. Fear is definitely healthy. It's the doubt that I say is toxic. Um, the doubt can hold you back from doing many things, you know. So, yeah. I'm going to eradicate that doubt.
0: Well, it's um, like the um, that Henry Ford quote, isn't it? If you think you can or you think you can't, so you're right. And I think, yeah, positive. How, how did you sort of keep keep yourself positive when it was on those low periods on on any of the journeys?
2: Yeah, you know, I I was just focusing on the day by day. So I think this is something, especially for you, for your audience, uh, with everything that I do now, even in day to day life, I'm just always breaking my goals down. Um, you know, where I'm, whether it's a degree you're going for, a certain you're trying to step up in your career, or you've got whatever vision or dream. What I always try to do, especially on these big expeditions that take a hundred days or three hundred fifty two days, like my most recent one. Instead of looking at the end goal, which can be so overwhelming and daunting, and sometimes you can shell up and shy away from it, I try to break it down and focus day by day. Um, So I'm focusing only on one option, which is the day by day. But also, you know, visualizing. I think visualizing is important. I do visualize crossing that finish line. So whether I'm dying in the jungles of Madagascar with malaria or suffering (laughs) under my trailer from heat stroke, uh, I'm always picturing you know what it will be like once I get to that finish and how I'm bringing it back to the current situation of how I can get from here to there and then managing my expectations in between so it's a lot of you know I' probably say it's seventy percent mindset and only 30 percent physical and we've all yeah. got we've all got it you know maybe it gets covered um because it's it's it remains dormant and it, it you know it's not as polished um in this day and age as what we used to be back in our primitive days you know but I believe we've all got that uh, that instinct within, um, but yeah, break your goals down.
0: Yeah, Steph, I
1: think it's very impressive. But like, well, it's very impressive. What? I mean, what? The question I've got is: you're a Welshman, and. We all know what Welsh like, mums and dads are like. My, my parents don't want me to leave the house right now. What were your family like when they were realising that you were going to trek through Mongolia with like a trailer strapped to you and stuff?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my parents um, have always been supportive, you know, positively supportive in that aspect, they do definitely have their worries. And I do come out with ideas that they're like, what the hell are you thinking? Why would you possibly want to do that? You know, but I think, <laughs> but I think uh, they have faith in my preparation in terms of, they see how much I train, you know, I'm not going out to, it's not like base jumping, for example, um, that is almost a matter of when, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, if you if you continue to jump, cause it's any fine little mistake can go wrong. But with these expeditions that I'm planning, it's just so meticulous down to the details um, and learning what challenges will be there and how I can learn to overcome. So I think with my parents seeing how much planning and, and to a point where I'll hold off, you know, I'll delay the expedition if I'm not feeling confident or already. I will jump into it. I'll say, right, I'm not ready for a reason. Let's just delay it. Let's hold it back another month. Let me just try to work in these niggles to make sure I'm 100% confident that I can make it back in one piece. And then I'll go for it. And so I think they've learned that over this past decade. Um, but, you know, the early ones, I don't think I told them. You know what, I'm cycling in Vietnam. <laughs> I'm pretty sure halfway through that journey, I sort of <laughs> sent an email, you know, oh, P.S., you know, I'm at the bottom of the thread, right at the bottom of the email. I'm currently yeah. cycling to Vietnam. It's a beautiful country. <laughs> and that's when my mum was just like panicked then. Like, what? Who are you with? What tour are you with? No, just me and my friend. We found bikes from two old ladies for £10. <laughs> so we took them. <laughs> <laughs> We
0: mentioned.
1: Um, Sounds like a staff of a film, doesn't it? Like a horror film or something like that.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, I tell you they, I've brought them through a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of worries for sure. But um, you know, the way that the career is progressing now, we try to make it. Um, we try to make it just as extreme, just as ambitious, but but shorter and aiming more towards TV. Because all of these expeditions, what I've learned is it's not just about the passion anymore. It was for the first three, four years when I wasn't sharing them on social media and I was just doing it purely because I loved it. Yeah. now there's higher responsibilities you know i'm always in po- uh, in partnership with the likes of the wwf or the lima network con- uh, conversation uh, conservation or the united nations so it's all plastic pollution sustainability um and talking more about the environment and how we can how we can spread more awareness but on the positive stories and i believe the world is full of negativity you only have to switch on the tv and not choose to talk about the negatives and i do believe in raising awareness of yeah. course but i believe we can raise awareness in a positive way for example the, the jungles in madagascar are, are quite often being burnt down so they'll just talk about oh, more forests in madagascar are being burnt down rather than the 150 volunteers who are risking their lives to yeah. protect the forest to protect the species living within to expand the national park so what i try to do is shine the light on the real unsung heroes which is them and talk about why they're protecting the rainforest because it's being set alight. So it is a different way of of raising awareness, isn't it? More in a positive way. And uh, you know, positivity spreads further positivity.
0: You said about like social media being important and being able to like, put our message out there. It definitely is. But how do you I, I noticed from just watching the trailer of Mission Yangtze, you obviously record and document a lot of what you're doing. How do you balance them with like getting too sucked into that social media side and, and not maybe working toward your goal or, or vice versa? Do you find a balance in that?
2: Uh, no, what I, what I find is with the social media, it again gives me that extra motive, I would say. Um, it's almost more to go to these countries that are fairly unfamiliar, especially the west side of uh, China, <coughs> Australia, Madagascar, and it's to share stories that otherwise wouldn't have been known or to spread positivity <clears> or to shine a light on the beauty and the diversity of these countries. And when I see them, these videos or these photos being seen, you know, those supportive messages coming through and like, even I was Skyping along the mission, Yangtze, I was Skyping to to schools here in Wales, all the way to schools in, in the Bronx in New York, you know, giving yeah. live Q&A sessions. Um, and so, that made it extra special that after the first six months of Mission Yangtze, I thought, let's open this up. I did try to open up the first half of Mission Yangtze, but we lost 10 members of the 16 different people who joined at different times due to altitude, sickness, fear of wildlife or injury. So I put clothes on that. They, of course, they, none of them died. They made it back home. home and just safe just... with their families. Yeah, that was the main priority, of course. Um, but the second half was super interactive. We had hundreds of members of public. We had uh, news outlets. And we were, of course, filming for an international documentary that's still in the works. Uh, It will be going live this year. Uh, Chinese celebrities, brands organizations. We were live streaming to one point. How many was it? 1.2 million for seven hours straight on a live stream. Um, So I loved that side of it, you know, which was great. It's sort of like those people just following online, but encourages them to get out there themselves. And if you want to join you can join Something but like, like that
0: with um with the river yangtze trip i, I watched the trailer and i'm gonna watch the documentary where can people access the mission yangtze documentary
2: so the mission yangtze documentary is still in, in production at the minute right um it was we were hoping to launch it this month actually or next month but obviously with what's going on now situations are slowing
0: things um, down yeah, yeah there's,
2: there's a delay uh so we're looking hopefully within the next three to four months uh, hopefully. We we've we have sold it. I can't mention channels um and dates just yet, unfortunately. Okay. But once uh, a contract is signed and I get to go ahead, we can announce but there's some big channels and it is international. Hopefully here in the nothing here in the UK yet. Um, okay. but hopefully here in the UK too.
0: But just from watching the trailer, it seems like the journey along the Yangtze was so varied. It's like you've got the, the sort of the, the snow, the desert, the city build up. I would do sort yeah. of co- the, the variation you were encountering?
2: Yeah, it was mental. Yeah, good question. You know, China is just massive, you know, absolutely huge. And you're coming across, I think I walked through 11 different provinces, and each of those provinces, it was like walking through a different country. Yeah. Um, it's that diverse, you know, different cultures, different foods, different dialects. There's over 100 different dialects. So I was training in Mandarin, I was practicing my Mandarin, you know, but um, because the dialects kept changing. I was yeah. able to tell it because what I do isn't what they speak, you know. So, what well,
0: you've you know, learned useful, useful two weeks ago, like.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I was learning different dialects all the time. So when I speak now, not even the basic Mandarin's understood because there's a little bit of each dialect in each word, you know. But um, it was great, and that's what we wanted. We didn't want this documentary to be about you know one man and his mission. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't like that. I wanted it to be more about the beauty, as I said, the diversity, um, the different organizations that are protecting the Yangtze River. You know, there's more wind farms now, there's more solar panels, the air quality is getting better, um, species that were on the brink of extinction and now coming back into their numbers gradually. So these are positive stories in China that you don't really hear. Uh, you know, it's always focused on the negatives. So I was just trying to get as much info as I could. And I thought I would finish Mission Yangtze on a bit of a down. Like that was hideous, what I saw in the plastic pollution. But I finished it on a high because I didn't know I would be uh, witnessing all of the good being done. Like, yes, they're the biggest pollu- polluters uh, in the world. We're not lying about that. But um, they're also turning things around very fast. At an incredible rate considering there's 1.4 billion people there. So it was about that. But it was about the cities as well. So not just about the survival, you know, people yeah. don't want to see survive, they want to see the locals, they want to see how they live, their way of life, yeah, um, the, the cities as well, the history in each of these cities, the food, so we just really did our best to try to capture as much of that as we as we could do, so I can't wait for it to, to go live, it's a two-part series.
0: Well, just from the trailer, um, you seem as if you're having a a fantastic time pretty much all the time when you're doing it but you know I know sort of the magic of television the magic of cinema that that can't be the case like was there like a lot of highs and a lot of lows involved or was this Yeah
2: Yeah. I'm a nightmare for that I tell you because even in the the tough scenarios like I could be there vomiting and suffering with diarrhoea at the same time I'll be laughing about it Yeah, Yeah It's just the way I am I seem to laugh in the face of danger you know not to sound too cliche but in a funny way where people are watching and they laugh with me then and I'm like, yeah, maybe I look back at the footage and I do remember the pain that I was in. And then I'm thinking, well, maybe I should stress that a little bit more. And it's like, well, no, just just be you type of thing. Don't pretend yeah. it's any worse than it is. Just be you if if you're laughing, that's just how people deal with different situations. But I wasn't laughing with the bears. <laughs> I was not laughing. <laughs> I wasn't laughing when I was getting attached to oh, Mastiffs and I wasn't laughing when I was stalked for two days by a pack of wolves <laughs> yeah. well, I am now because it's I, over and, but I'm um, yeah, yeah, glad you mentioned
0: laughing. I'm glad you mentioned the wolves again Ash because the first time I became aware of you I think it must have been Radio 2 when there was the news and I said Welsh mm-hmm. adventure Ash Dykes has just, just come back from River Yangtze and you mentioned the being chased by wolves and I, I was driving the car and uh, forgive me if you're saying this I burst out laughing when I heard it because that was so <laughs> alien to me going out <laughs> In some way and being chased yeah. by wolves, you know. Like if I, my only yeah. scenario, my only sort of experience of that is watching cartoons. I would have been throwing a a sausage at them, trying to run away and things. But I'm going to cope with that? Because that's just a, a, unheard of. It living in such a soft society like we do, us unheard of. How did to cope with that?
2: Yeah, man, it was it was eerie. Uh, we could hear that. Well, it was me and my videographer from Texas called Kyle, and we we could hear these wolves howling. We counted maybe there's about five, six of them. Um, and when we heard them, we thought, wow, that was my first time ever hearing wolves out in the wild, you know, howling away. There was something awe-inspiring about that, you know, but at the same time, creepy. But we made nothing of it. We thought, wow, lucky to hear. We carried on. And that's when we came across uh, Tibetan guys. It was about four Tibetan guys. And they were warning us. We caught all of this on camera as well. so that was yeah. the documentary. They were warning us. Uh, and my, my friend could speak perfect Mandarin. He's fluent. But these Tibetan guys spoke Tibetan, of course, so there was no understanding there.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I warned of something. Anyway, they were doing all the hand gestures. Uh, and we'd been warned at this point by so many people about different stuff that we just sort of shake it off. And like, yeah, yeah, we carry on. Anyway, it was only four months later that I found out because my editing team in Beijing called Manjin Films uh, had the footage that they were editing. And it was when that girl wrote to us saying, you had no idea what those uh, Tibetan guys were saying. And I said, no, of course not. What were they saying? And they were there saying that only yesterday, right in that valley where you two were heading, there was a lady killed by a pack of wolves. Um, so, So they were advising us not to go down that way. But we didn't understand. So we said, oh, we'll be fine. And we walked on, and it was Dude is waving
0: and
1: saying, "No
2: worries, boys." Ta-da, yeah, hi- we're you. like bye bye.
1: Cover, covering yourself in salt.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know. Up and down the mountain. It's gonna be and delicious. We, yeah. And we realized that these wolves were—they were following us for about two days. They normally cover further distance than than us, um, but they would stay in almost perfect distance away, almost on the other side of the mountain for yeah. two full days and so we were like hang on that's that's eerie we need to be vigilant so we started to eat away from our tents um started to make loud noises as well made sure that we didn't look injured because you know they're intelligent hunters if they wanted us they could have probably had us but they uh they disappeared eventually we just didn't hear the howling and we couldn't find any evidence of the fact that they were there so yeah
0: well animals will often go for like um a softer a softer target when they see so if you sort of like maintain that sort of shall we bother
2: especially the ones in china they're not so big in china the ones okay. in mongolia i was more worried about because they're gray wolves you know they're, they're the biggest yeah, um, yeah and they don't they don't care you know one person and i was so <laughs> low as well of course but i had the trailer behind me so it made me look big it looked like an extension of my body you know so yeah. I mean, like 20 29 stone instead like a (laughs) a massive snail (laughs) exactly yeah so that was all right the tibetan mastiffs were far worse though they were a much bigger threat Uh, and they the tibetan mastiffs are like a semi-wild guard dogs they're they're sort of left out uh outside even in the winter in minus 40 they're left outside Uh, but they protect the locals in their white felt tent or their gur or yurt as we call it And their livestock from like the wolves, even the snow leopards and bears. They can scare away bears as well. And sometimes these weren't they. You know they were chained up for a reason and staked in the ground. Uh, They were big, heavy dogs, aggressive too. But sometimes they weren't staked in the ground, and you're walking past. The locals are like, "Well, bloody hell, we didn't expect anyone to be (laughs) there. What's the need to stake this dog in the ground?" And yeah, they would come at you, and you'd have to throw rocks. You'd have to. Do everything you could to keep them at, uh, at bay. You know, I was more exhausted after fending off a, a dog attack from the Tibetan Mastiff than I was after a Muay Thai fight in Thailand in forty degrees Celsius. You know, I was exhausted. But, but for anyone
0: who hasn't seen a Tibetan Mastiff, they they're That's like a for layered, a going dead four, dead four legs. To
2: yeah, you can get one up on, on Google if you can, if you can show it on this screen.
0: Yeah, it would be very, very scary dogs. But was there any fear when you encountered people as well? Because was there any sort of risk there, did you feel, or was it pretty pretty easy going?
2: In China, very easy going. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I always say the locals can either make or break a journey, um, depending on how they are with you. And China were just amazing you know always welcoming there was only one sketchy time where i s- approached two old ladies hadn't seen anyone in a day or two so i wanted to ask them for the directions but of course yeah. for them being so remote they've probably never even seen a westerner here it was such a yeah, yeah. um and as i was approaching them i had this big beard um i had these red eyes i was a bit sunburned i had this hair i had this big rucksack i was all in blue you know wild eyes staring I was just trying to approach them below with a big smile and they just freaked out, you know. They climbed an embankment, picked up two rocks, and, um, you know, threatened me. So I knew that. I was like, whoa. I'm <laughs> probably still being talked about how this big foot figure dressed in blue with red eyes came wandering into their little community. <laughs> but that's,
0: that's how legends start, isn't it? You know, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. the, the Northwalian exactly. wild man it would be the new yeah. legend in that, in that region of China. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And that was the only time with China. With Madagascar, yeah. it was far more. Um, Amazing locals in Madagascar, don't get me wrong, but some sketchy times as well down south. You know, I was held at the gunpoint by the military, I had to avoid the bandits. I was trying to hide in the jungle, um, but then realized that the bandits are hiding in the jungle to get away from the military. So we were in a bad spot. So we had to take the jungle, <laughs> bump into the military, and there they were, you know. Uh, but Madagascar was insane as well. That was 155 days, first to walk the entire length, of fire at central. Mountainous ridge and summits, and the eight highest mountains. And, uh, you know, if you saw the Joe Rogan podcast, that's probably where you hear the story about Gertrude the chicken, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But, like, I think, yeah, come on, Seth.
1: Oh, sorry, um, right, I, I've got a question, and um, oh. like, I'm sure no reputable news places have asked you this, right? When you are, um, go, going through this 4,000 mile trek, what's the etiquette? For when you want to have a poo, just <laughs> drop your cacks and do it, or
2: exactly that. You answered it for me, yeah. You, um, yeah. Man, literally. yeah, and because you're in the wilderness, there's no one really there. As long as you don't, don't do it too close to your tent because of the bears and whatnot, uh, you just off you go, just in, in nature, how we used to do it many moons ago. <laughs>
1: That's brilliant. That's like a 75 pound fine in Cardiff.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. bad. <that> <laughs>
1: uh, <that's not>
2: <laughs> yeah, what? One time I remember I was um, I came across a local surprise because I was in the west. I thought I don't need to wander too far from the from the little track that I was following. So I didn't, you know, I dropped my pants. I went right there and then, and a the guy, <laughs> and a guy went by, <laughs> and I thought he's just gonna you know go by and maybe throw a wave my way, but he didn't. He stopped and wanted to talk, and I'm like. In the middle of you know, <laughs> I am just like hey. <laughs> you can go now, he's just like there, like nodding, smiling away, and trying to talk in Chinese back in dialect. It's the most awkward five minutes ever. <laughs> at,
0: at least at least you know that you, uh, was you were... was Chinese for
2: private or, time. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, there's been many <laughs> awkward moments like that, especially with the wife offering. Uh, with the Kazakh community in the west of Mongolia. That was just as awkward. Um, there was a time. Ton- have, have you heard about that?
0: No, tell us. Um, you know, I, I, yeah. I like to listen to this because then I can see how to offer to give my wife away as well because uh, when, <laughs> this isolation period is getting quite difficult, you know, so some tips on how to give my wife away could be useful.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I was just in the west of Mongolia following the, the trailer through the Altai Mountains. Um, the locals, again, were so amazing always invited me inside got some kazakh chai i say the kazakhs because the kazakhs um do um occupy mainly the the west of mongolia uh and yeah i was invited in 45 minutes eating drinking some tea and then i thought to myself okay it's been a while i need to get up and, and crack on i've got a hell of a day ahead of me more distance to cover and just as i looked at the, the man of the hut uh to tell him i could see him looking at me very weird and i thought oh that's odd and then he was looking at his, his wife or his girlfriend and then looked back to me, looked at me, looked back to her. And then right there and then in hand gestures, he pointed to the bed. He pointed at his wife and me and sort of did those hand gestures. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I was trying to think of everything it could be except for the basic of what it probably is. I was like, surely it can't be that. Uh, and there was that awkward look. I was sort of looking at her. I was looking at him. He was looking at me. Looking at There was that it, it awkward exchange of looks. And then I just put on a fake laugh. Um, didn't know even whether to laugh, you don't know, do you? Imagine he gets the and you're laughing at us. Um, and you know, a couple of seconds later he laughed as well. And and I made a, made a swift exit. She continued breastfeeding her child and uh, uh, yeah. I got the heck out of there. Uh,
0: like, I, like was the feet, perhaps. Right?
2: I was yeah. on my way.
0: Well, you could have just pulled your trousers down and gone to the toilet that made it less awkward for everyone. I might be away again of getting out <laughs> as well, perhaps.
2: Yeah, that's it. <laughs>
0: you, you, you mentioned sort of doing jobs uh, in preparation for sort of saving and, and getting yourself onto these trips. Uh, initially, on sort of the, the, the ladder of, of being an adventurer, like a concept that comes up quite a lot on on this show is sort of like real jobs and having a, a real job. You know, because got creatives and oh, that's not a real job. You know, so what, what sort of jobs did you do in preparation? You mentioned uh, you see wait, wait, waiter in and a lifeguard. This was oh,
2: this was over ten years ago now. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah originally like.
2: Yeah, since Mongo, since Madagascar, since Mongolia, Madagascar is able to fully establish into uh, into a career uh, where I've got the books, I've got the TV, I've got the talks, uh, brand endorsements, sponsorship, etc., etc. But uh, before that, yeah, before I set off for travels altogether, I was working in a fish and chip shop on three pounds ten an hour, Um, and then I and then I was working as a as a waiter in Brewers Fair. Craigside in an Avon Conway here in North Wales.
0: yeah. And then
2: I went on to lifeguarding in Klandidno, uh, because that was better money for that age. I was 17, 18 and 19 during that time. Um, and then my next job, which was after sort of the traveling, is when I stayed and lived in Thailand uh, for two years. And I was a, a master scuba diving instructor um, in Thailand for the two years and a Muay Thai fighter. Whereas if you win a fight, you get paid three months' worth of accommodation. Effectively, if you lose, okay. you go nothing. So um, a mix between those two. Uh, but scuba diving, you don't earn much money, of course. But it's it's a great it's a great lifestyle. But that's when I I realised I needed to to change something, and that's the biggest risk I probably ever took was to give up something that I had worked so hard and built myself up the rankings with scuba diving, almost number one, top level. To give that up, to give my position up, to attempt Mongolia, and if I failed, it would effectively be back to Thailand or back to Life Garden. I don't know. And so that was also a motive when I was sort of slowly dying in the Gobi Desert. It was sort of, you know, if you, if you turn back or you don't make this, it would have been a waste of a journey almost. If I do make this, maybe there's a potential where I can continue doing what I love and what I'm passionate about. Yeah. Um, so trying to avoid
0: ending back up on a poolside in sand no with the whistling in your yeah, pocket.
2: That's it, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, face the Gobi Desert a little bit longer. Did you but get many
0: Did you get him any moments when you got to the almost the brink of of wanting to quit and turn around?
2: Um, oh, it's, it's a good question. N- no, not quit maybe because in mongolia i had no option so in okay. mongolia uh the, I, again five weeks in the gobi desert but after the first week or two i started suffering severely with dehydration one of the water wells was dry and i now had to push on to the next water source which had people which i knew was guaranteed to have water if there was people there but that was a hell of a distance and the the water was just going down and down i was sort of rushing yeah. my remaining dribbles and so i went from heat Uh, from dehydration to heat exhaustion on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. I was delirious. I was hallucinating. It was over 40 degrees Celsius. There was no natural shelter. There was no breeze. There was no people. I went over eight days without seeing a single human. Um, And the only shelter I could find was underneath my trailer. And at this point I could almost feel my organs and my insides drying up. I was in agony. Um, And at my worst point, I still had four days to go in this heat through this desert to get to that water source um, and that's when it was at that point i realized i missed the point of pickup because unlike the other guy i didn't have no helicopter pickup it was a, a very low budget um expedition i would have to rely on my agent to find me in the Gobi desert which would take three to four days and then take me to the next community which would take another yeah. day or so so It was either five days and hope five or six days and hopefully he finds me or four days and I could guarantee make it. So I almost had no other option apart from to get out from under my trailer and push on. And again, that's where the break and the goals down was so crucial. You know, I'd spend an hour under my trailer and I couldn't visualize four days. I was in too much pain. But what I could visualize was 100 meters. I could see 100 meters. And I thought there's no reason why if I can't keep getting out of my trailer, allowing no more than five minutes, and push on for 100 meters because that's all as I could uh, could manage before yeah. hiding for 100 meters. So by doing the 100 meters, five minute break, 100 meter, five minute break, eventually after four very excruciating days where I did almost die in the Gobi Desert, uh, I did. I made it. I was off the radar for eight days trying to recover. The locals looked after me. My urine was almost black. I was yeah, oh in very bad, very bad way. Um, but once my body started to recover, and I was fearful as well. I had to face more of the Gobi Desert, uh, and I wasn't feeling right. So that it was at that time where I was a bit like, "Wow, how fast the sun can take you," you know. But I realized if I allow myself to recover to one hundred percent, I told myself, "I'll, I'll push on." Yeah, and I did. I did. Um, I pushed on. I took my time more. And completed that that journey. Yeah, that was a, a scary time for sure. Um, but we made it.
0: Well, I, I can't imagine how, how difficult and sort of horrendous that level of dehydration would be. Like, I, I've been sat there with a glass of water and I, I I've I finished it and I'm dying, dying to finish back up already. So yeah. that must have been it's, absolutely horrific.
2: It's awful, man. It's awful. I get quite, I asked sometimes questions like, oh, you know, where would you prefer your chances in? Uh, like the cold climate, like in Antarctica, for example, or in a hot yeah. desert. I always say I prefer um, the cold climate, you know, because mm. there's something that, that I've faced many cold climates, but you know, you get to the point where you go through all of the pain, of course, and then you become so numb and so delirious that all of the victims found that die of hypothermia, found with their hats off, with their scarves off, with their, their jackets zipped down because they stopped okay. leaving. That. Warm and hot and then they go to sleep and then they never wake up. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the golden desert, from what I experienced, every second feels like an hour. You are just there crawling on the desert floor, sort of you know, burning on the outside, drying up on the inside, and you just eat <coughs> every part of it.
0: This is the part where the yeah, uh, parcel man has turned <laughs> up as oh, well. So I, I have got to be with do the doll. It is a <laughs> parcel man to it, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry. Right, right. <laughs>
0: it, it come the real
1: questions. No, no. no. Right. So, so in doing four thousand miles. Yeah. Oh, what was that? Um. Right. So four thousand miles. That's like for me insane. I don't think I've ever counted to four thousand in my head. So you know, in tracking all that, did you did you get like like mega blisters and like chafing and that kind of stuff? And like, how did you deal with that? I've actually got like Savlon and stuff on it.
2: Yeah, I tell you what, <sighs> there's no way that I found or that anyone else has found so far that you're not getting blisters. You know what? What whatever distance you're walking, well, especially if it's the distance I was covering, you're always going to get blisters because what I found in the in the cold, so higher up in the altitude when I was at five thousand plus meters towards the source of the Yangtze River where its origin is. Um, I found that my feet were cold. You know, they weren't sweaty, which makes them soft, which then you're more susceptible to blisters, but they were rock hard because it was so cold. And so I would get cracked feet instead of blisters where it's cold. And then all of that pressure and whatnot, eventually the wear and tear cracks your feet. So you just whack a plaster over the top and you're all right. And then my feet up to the point where I was in a hot climate, my feet were, were hard as nails at this point, you know, but because it was so hot, your feet sweat and your skin goes soft so you're getting blisters Um, so you'll always for the first two or three weeks you'll always be getting blisters but eventually your feet will harden up depending on the weather depending on the climate so on all of my journeys I've tried different footwear I never use boots I can't stand boots you know especially because I I believe people need them because of ankle support but uh, touch wood I've never twisted an ankle I've just been using trainers, really, you know. Trainers, lightweight. If they get wet, they dry easy. They've got that cushion at the bottom, makes it more comfortable. Flashing Sometimes, light
0: on the heel as well, Lash.
2: All of that, all of the gadgets, you know? <laughs> You've got to look cool while you're doing it, right? Heelys,
0: just get heelys <laughs> you're <I'm> fine. <laughs>
2: yeah, straight <laughs> yeah. yeah. away
0: across the Gobi Desert
2: crocs i had a big <laughs> crocs uh, but only at night time you know to let my feet air i would go from my trainers straight into my crocs and i'd be walking around you know no one's there and you're just cooking your food listening to a bit of music on the loudspeaker <laughs> in the middle of nowhere with your crocs on you know
0: you, you should have those crocs on when that yeah. man was the only place i can
1: have crocs <laughs>
2: Yeah, and sandals in the jungle as well just sandals so a lot of people wear boots but I went the local way uh, where the locals would just sometimes they would go barefoot you know tribes of course but um, one of my guys was just in sandals so I tried it I could see why you know if you're wearing Mm. boots and and trainers if you're crossing rivers or streams you have to take them off cross the river dry your feet put them on on the other side and if you've got hundreds to cross that day it's just not um, realistic. You can cover good, good ground. So I always went sandals. Yeah. Went plowing on through. You'd have to get a lot of the leeches off, of course. But the leeches are going everywhere. Even in the jungles in the north of Madagascar, we had a big machete and we were sort of hacking through the jungle because there was no paths. So nobody goes there. Um, and we had leeches and spiders falling from the jungle canopy down on top. And, you know, on our, often most nights we'd take our, our shirts off and we'd have to ply, you know, six, seven leeches and flick them out of tent. Uh, a nasty bite from a spider I, I sustained as well that I had to use, like aloe vera. You get aloe vera plants out there and they sort of anti- yeah. antiseptic, they help to, to clear it. But um, yeah, you know, once you're out there, blisters, chafing, insects, wild animals, Oof. weather, terrain, all of it, it uh, it gets you, gets you. Makes you appreciate the impact blitz. over all yeah, that's it. Right. We're gonna
0: we, we we're getting close to to the hour mark now. So, Steph, have you got your um, anagrams? It's a feature we normally oh, yeah. do, actually. right? Where we take the the guests, the guests' uh, name, and make some nice anagrams. So, if there's any, any sort of uh, pseudonyms you want to take from Messi, more than welcome. Got a on, good one from Jeff. Well, we've
2: actually got, so a, actually got
1: a got a question from, from Jeff. Jeff.
0: Go on, we will go with that.
2: Yeah, what do you? So, Jeff, yeah. Jeff, what do you do for food supplies when you're in the middle of nowhere? So, um. For what we were just talking about then, for example, for Madagascar in the jungles, we were doing a lot of hunting and gathering. Uh, so you can get a lot of um, sugar cane or, or mangoes or sometimes coconuts, which were heavenly. Uh, and for meat, we would often hunt for small rodents, often burrowing underneath trees, like tenrecs, that you can literally just put your hand straight under and pull them out. You've got meal for that night. Uh, Mongolia, I carried the trailer, which was 120 kilograms. So I had all of my rations. Five weeks worth of ration packs on the back of that. So that's why it was so heavy. Um, And China, I was relying more on the locals. I was coming across more and more locals. So whilst I took rations, the locals were incredibly hospitable. They would invite us in, they would feed me up and wish me well. Um, So yeah, that's how I was dealing with different food supplies and during the different expeditions. Yes
0: nice way of doing it either way you can find it if not dip into your ration pack it's, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a good, yeah. good
2: approach we came across we came across a lot of weird things as well like eating Pasha worm which is like a, a centipede that burrows in the Yangtze River or blowing okay. pig's liver which is from the a, a Bai minority people in China where they have pig's liver and they blow it up uh, okay. marinate it in chilli and, and vodka blow it up and then cook it and they say it gives it extra flavour and texture so like so weird you... things I come across
0: have you been tempted to serve that any uh, any gatherings or parties? <laughs> yeah,
2: give you imagine? So a magic. So today, don't worry about the
0: vodka jail, you just get some vodka we'll pig's liver instead.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Should we uh, just do the anagram step? Yeah, why not, why not, right. Uh, anagrams of
1: Ash dykes. Right, so uh w- weren't many vowels in this, but I found some all right ones. So uh, a few anagrams. Shaky Des, that sounds like, uh you know, like somebody that lives in your village. Uh, desks, yeah, that's what people say in Chelsea. Uh, then we've got a shy desk. Then we've got dash keys. I don't know, like, keys off your dash. But my favourites, right? Yes. yak sheds that's an anagram of your name and this is this is my favorite uh open mind everyone ky shades ky shades, that. K-Y shades. yeah yeah so they, they get they smooth onto your head really easily
2: <laughs> <Okay.
1: K-Y-K-Y. laughs> yeah ky shades yeah yeah no. <laughs> so that's the inside of my head for you
2: there we go. <laughs>
0: nice. Ash, this has been an um, absolute pleasure. We really appreciate you giving up your time on a, on a Sunday. Not sure if we didn't have anything else planned. Mind with this current situation? No, it was
2: lockdown, hey, no, so uh, oh, thanks for having oh, me, guys.
0: No, appreciate no problem. We, we don't know what's, what's happening next. Is It's sort of un, un, sort of uncertain times. What, what have we got next on your agenda? What are you planning now in the f- near future?
2: So we're working on the, the second book, Um we're working with the team in LA on some pictures we've got for TV, and the next expeditions we've got about eight to ten different ideas. So I can't say just yet, but um, yeah, we're working both in the US and uh, China on some really cool projects. So uh, if you're on the social media, especially Instagram, you know, do follow along, uh, and I will keep you posted when when I know more.
0: Nice one, good. Well, Ash, so as I said, thank you very much. This has been awesome, Steph. Lovely to see you. I'm seeing you for the last couple of weeks, and thanks very much, Ben, has been listening, tuning in. Thank you very much. Yeah, much You're Thanks,
2: guys. Stay safe, Bye. stay healthy, and stay productive. Take thank, care. Thank you very Cheers. much. Thank you. Cheers.
3: Jochen Bauer. Thank you very much for listening to the Tales from Wales podcast. Uh, Big thanks goes out to our wonderful guest, Ash Dykes, a very inspirational guy. I'm sure you'll be seeing much more from him. Uh, Big thanks to everybody at Joke Pit, uh, Joke Pit Connecting Comedy. They're doing some great things at the moment, so uh, look them up. They're on Facebook, they're on the internet, all that jazz. And uh, thanks to Drew Taylor for sorting out the guest. And uh, if you liked what you've heard and seen then why not give us a like, subscribe, find us on Facebook at the Tales and Wales podcast. We're on all of the podcasting platforms, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Spotify, all of that. So uh, if you want to find us for previous episodes, they are very good. So uh, have a look there. So thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Thank you.
2: We keep the